Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. Not all that free, it's free and responsible. That's how we say it. Free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. Whoever you are, whomever you love, whatever body you live in, you are welcome here. We teach that there is a spark of the divine in everyone. It is in the spirit of that heritage, because we've been teaching it for a long time, that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. I've changed the words by which we light our chalice. Reaching back into history, these are words that were written in the late 1800s by a Unitarian. I will have his name in the bulletin next week. Please say them with me. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is from Henry David Thoreau. To live deliberately. Why should we live in such a hurry and waste of life? We are determined to be starved before we are hungry. I wish to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life. I wish to learn what life has to teach and not, when I come to die, discover that I have not lived. I do not wish to live what is not life. Living is so dear. Nor do I wish to practice resignation unless it is quite necessary. I wish to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. I wish to cut a broad swath, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. If it proves to be mean, then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or if it is sublime, to know it by experience and to be able to give a true account of it. At certain moments in life it occurs to you, what am I doing here? And why am I doing this? If it occurs to you during this hour, all you have to do is look up on the wall. We figured it out temporarily. And we say it together every Sunday. Here's what we're doing here. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This is the time in our service when we breathe together quietly, when we speak to God as we understand God, or when we listen to our inner wisdom, or where we just feel our breath go in and out of our bodies. It is in this way that many of the religions of the world say that we can learn, train ourselves to live in the present like a rose, to understand that we are who we are, no matter what is happening, and that we can sink our roots deep into the heart of compassion. 
and open our leaves to the sun of love. Let us enter into the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, small baby noises and the sounds of life count as part of the silence. There are a lot of articles on Facebook about how to be happy. Five steps to happiness. Seven things people do in their lives that make them unhappy. Hundreds of them. So I know that people are pretty interested in being happy. I probably would have known that before Facebook, too. Most people have felt it, happiness. And... It tends to disappear, you know, when our bank account shrinks or when our um, car breaks down or when a friend is drinking again or when we get a bad diagnosis. Happiness kind of grows up and down. So what we're talking about this morning is one of the most ancient eight steps to happiness that there are. Is. It's the Buddhist eightfold path. On the front of your bulletin, you see a picture of a path because this is a path, but on your bulletin, there are steps. And there's not eight steps to happiness because they all happen at the same time. But one of the steps, and well, they're all essential, one of them is right understanding. That's the first one. How do you get it? How do you get what's happening? How do you get the way the world works? How do you wake up to the reality of it? The Buddha, I just want to tell you a little backstory on the Buddha. This is the faith story of the Buddha. People think that there really was this guy, but uh, almost everything, all the accretions on the story are faith story accretions, which doesn't make them less true, just might make them less historical. There was a prince named Siddhartha. And his mom had died when he was seven days old. There was a holy man there at the time that made a prophecy about this princeling baby and said he was going to either be a great soldier, a great king, or a great holy man. Well, his father, the king, wanted to uh, increase the odds against the holy man option. And so he had Siddhartha raised in a palace that was made just for him. When he was 16, he was given a beautiful wife whom he loved, and she loved him back. And they had some children. But he had never been outside the gates. Why would he? Everything came to him. One day he decided he was going to go out in his chariot and see the outside. And he was riding down the road with his charioteer, and he saw this old man. He said, What's wrong with him? And the charioteer said, Sire, he's, he's old. What did he do to get that way? Well, Sire, it happens to everyone. And the prince started thinking about that. I'm going to look like that one day? He ventured out more and more, and on subsequent trips, he saw a man with a disease. Said to the charioteer, What's wrong with him? Sire, he has a disease. What did he do to have that happen? Well, it just happens. It happens to a lot of people, almost everybody. We're all just temporarily able-bodied. 
I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) And he was horrified that disease was there. On another trip, he saw a corpse decaying by the side of the road. He asked, what, what kind of disease does he have? Well, sire, he's dead. This was a new thing. He asked about that, found out it happens to everybody. Then on another trip, he saw a holy man. What's up with him? He's got long fingernails like this, and he's all scrawny, and his hair is like, like that. Well, he's a holy man. He, he deprives himself of the pleasures of life so that he can have wisdom instead. And the prince thought, I need to do that. So he left his home and his family and went out into the world to be a holy man. He was passionate about it. He starved himself until his belly button hit his spine. That's what they say. Other ascetics, other holy people who deprived themselves of pleasure, admired his dedication so much they started being his disciples. He had five disciples. He would, uh, you know, suffer pain, and he suffered deprivation, and they would sleep outside, and they said no to uh, every pleasure, like baths and stuff. And... um, He still couldn't get any wisdom, though. He still didn't understand how to satisfy this hole that had opened up in him with the horrors of disease and aging and death. Mortality had just smacked him on the head uh, all at once. And being an intelligent person, he began to struggle to deal with it. Nothing worked. And so one day he just thought, ugh, A little girl on the street offered him a bowl of rice because that's what you do with holy people. And he took it and he ate it. And then he went down to the river and he took a bath. And his disciples were horrified. They're clutching the pearls. Um, Again, paraphrasing. And they left him. They said, this man is a fake. He's not who we thought he was. And so he was alone. And he sat under a tree and he said, I'm going to sit here until I understand everything. I'm going to sit here and meditate until I achieve enlightenment. And all night, and for several nights, the demon Mara, the demon of illusion, tempted him. Every holy man's story has a temptation part in it. And this is the Buddhist. Mara tempted him with power and with um, beautiful girls and with delicious food. And um, the Buddha was just committed to sitting there until he achieved enlightenment. And one morning, as the dawn rose, Mara said to him, Okay, you're enlightened, but it was because of me and all the things I did for you that you're enlightened. And the Buddha put his hand on the earth and said, I call the earth to witness that I'm enlightened. And then Mara went, and he was enlightened. And the king of gods, Brahma, asked him if he would, instead of poofing away into nirvana the way he could have, having been enlightened, if he would please stay and teach. And he said, I, okay. And he thought, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to listen to what I have to say. But he tried anyway to teach the things that had come to him as he sat under the tree and became enlightened. 
The first group he went to preach for uh, were some people down by the river, and he started to teach the truths that he'd been shown. Among those people at the river were the five ascetics who had left him. So he taught that there are four truths about how the world works. One is that life is out of joint. There's something not right. People suffer, bad things happen. Uh, what, is, what is the problem here? Two, um, this out-of-placeness is caused by craving, by desire. If you, and the number three, if you can give up craving and desire, you'll be happy. Um, how do you do that? Number four is the way you give up craving and desire is this eightfold path that we're going to talk about. So, this eight elements of the path. We're going to talk today about right understanding, which is getting it. So that's the first job and the continuing job of the person who wants to be happy. You have to get the way the world works. Because if you don't get the way the world works, your happiness is never going to be a steady thing. You, you have to wake up and be struck by the temporary nature of good health. You have to be struck by that lightning of tragedy and trouble, or you can just be struck by that lightning when you see somebody else's tragedy and trouble, but usually we can avoid that. It has to happen to us. Sometimes people get it when they, when they have a friend who's killed in a car wreck, or when they have a heart attack, or when a piano falls on their head, and suddenly the assurance of that ongoingness where you're just skipping through your life going, la, 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 I wish I had a new car. Um, that assurance of ongoingness is just vanished. And that whole illusion of security that we have, that we have to have in order to keep living in a non-worried kind of way, there's a veil that we put over this um, temporary nature of life itself. There's a veil that gets lifted every now and then for us for a second. For some people, it's lifted forever. A deeper reality crooks its finger at you and says, wake up. If you're old enough to remember the classic deeply Buddhist movie, The Matrix, the, uh, the wake up voice is Lawrence Fishburne. Wake up, wake up. I can't do Lawrence Fishburne. I wish I could. And one of the things I find most relaxing about Buddhism is that it doesn't take any faith at all. The Buddhists don't say, you must believe and then it will work. The Buddhists just go, try it. If it works for you, great. And what they say is, you start with your experience. Here's your experience. Just look at your life. How much of your attention is squandered in anxiety, in worry, in hoping for stuff for the future, in being afraid of stuff that's coming in the future, in being regretful of stuff that's in the past? What's going to happen to us? Am I going to run out of money? Am I going to end up a bag lady? Am I going to get better from this illness? Will I ever find love? Will my partner ever uh, be the guy I want him to be? Um, most people's attention just gets frittered away on moments that are not the present moment. Emerson's reading about the roses encourages us to just be in the present moment. That's part of what our faith tradition teaches. Because 
life is a roller coaster. In the words of the immortal bard, John Prine, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. It's a half an inch of water and you think you're going to drown. That's the way that the world goes around. It's up and down. So things happen to you. That's the basic. You do things and things happen to you. And then you tell yourself a story about what happens to you. You say, this shouldn't happen. That's a story. You say, this is a punishment. That's a story. You say, this happened because I misbehaved in college. Or this happened because I was uh, not sweet enough to my mother. Or this happened because whatever the story that you make up. And Buddhism says all these thoughts about what happened, all these stories about what happened are most of what makes the roller coaster. Most of us have pain. There's pain in life because life is hard. But most of us add to our pain by adding suffering, which is the thoughts about the pain. Most of us complicate our pain by adding stories about why it's happening or how it shouldn't be happening or how we deserve it or how we don't deserve it. And the way that the Eightfold Path helps you strengthen yourself for happiness is that it helps you train yourself morally and mentally and emotionally to be free from the suffering that thoughts add to your pain. So right understanding or getting it is the first strand of the Eightfold Path. You have to get the Four Noble Truths that most suffering is caused by desire and craving. You crave how things should be. You have a picture in your mind of how this is going to go. And when it doesn't go this way, you suffer. Rather than just appreciating that you're alive and drawing breath in this thing that wasn't what you pictured, but there it is. You have hopes that an interview is going to go well, okay? You're in an interview, you dress really carefully, you prepare really carefully, you're anxious about it, you worry later, did they like me, did I say something wrong, you go over the conversation. If you don't get the job, you wonder, why didn't they like you? Well, what did they do wrong? What did you do wrong? And you have ideas about how it should have gone, and you have interpretations of how it went. And, and um, Or sometimes your, your beloved child or parent or partner starts using or drinking again and you think, oh, they're drinking because I didn't clean up the house enough or they're drinking because I wasn't supportive enough about their job or they're using because I, 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 I. And really, mostly they start using again because they're an addict. They just did it. Mostly the interview didn't go well because you are not a good fit for that company. Do you want a job where you're not a good fit? You'd be miserable. Maybe not getting that job, you were spared. You have fears. You have hopes. You're not in the moment. You suffer. So, What Buddhism teaches is that if you focus your mind, if you breathe, if you try to remain in the present, 
Breathing is just a way to stay in the present, right? You, it's not magical. You just follow your breath in and out. You give your mind something to do. That's all it is. I'm giving my mind something to do and follow my breath in and out of my body. And then things calm down. The moments seem to have more spaces between them. And in that quiet is where you can sometimes begin to tell the difference between what happens and what the story you're telling about what happens is. Uh, a church member came to me, because I, I talk about this pretty often. A church member came to me and said, we had one of those interpretation moments in the parking lot. I waved to my friend, and she just turned around and turned her back to me and didn't wave back and got in her car. And I thought, what did I do to her? And then I remembered that you talk about this all the time, and I thought, oh, poor thing. She probably just didn't even see me. And I, and I wrote her later on Facebook, and I said, I waved to you in the parking lot. And she was like, oh, I saw somebody waving, but the light was behind you. I couldn't tell who it was, and I didn't want to be a dork and wave to somebody who was waving to somebody behind me. And I, you know. <laughs> so in getting quiet, you can notice the thoughts you're having about what's happening in your life. And another part of getting it is understanding the law of karma, which is not that complicated. Buddhist teachers say this about karma. I don't know if they're right or not. Try it. See if it works for you. Uh, It works for me sometimes. Beings are the owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions. They are bound to their actions and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they will be heirs. So the Buddhist scriptures, like the Christian scriptures, say, you know, the Christian scriptures talk about human beings as a tree that bears fruit. And whatever fruits fruits that tree is bearing, you'll know what kind of roots the tree has by the fruits it's bearing. And the Buddhist kind of teaches that you're sitting by... uh, you're, you're in a river, and your time is like you move down the stream to the sea as you live your life. But the actions that you did upstream can sometimes have dumped toxic mess into the river. And so as you are farther down the river, you are inheriting the actions of your own past. And you're dealing with the consequences of the actions of your own past. Now, this is fundamentalist Buddhism. Later Buddhism says, you, there is some grace here because you didn't get it back then when you were upstream. You didn't understand. And so you can borrow the good karma of the people who, who achieve enlightenment and stay as teachers. Those are called bodhisattvas. And so you can borrow the karma of the good bodhisattvas because they built up so much good karma. They, they have extra. They don't need it all. And so we can, we can appropriate some of that for ourselves. So there's a little grace. You are a being that, that arises from your actions, but you're not really bound to your actions if you get it now. You can avoid some of the fallout from what you did before by changing your actions now. So um, isn't it informative that there's fundamentalist Buddhism and then there's later Buddhism and that not all Buddhists agree? And Buddhism, by the way, is very similar to Hinduism because Siddhartha was a Hindu uh, before he started this new religion. So Buddhism and Hinduism are like this. They're um, related like 
Judaism, and Christianity. So Buddhists don't really talk about being bad. They don't say you were bad. They just say this action caused a certain effect. You're downstream from a certain action that is uh, harming you now. So if you want to clean up the stream, you start owning your own actions. You don't blame everybody else for the crap that's floating down the stream. Can I say crap? Is that a bad word here? (laughs) I just go, in every church it's different. Sometimes I say that word and people go, (gasps) and other times people are like, yeah. I spent time in Philadelphia. Just blame it on that. So you own your actions. You say, yes, I did that. If you are going through a messy divorce, you suffer less if you say, here was my part of the mess. This is what I did. And you can do something about that. You can never make that person you're divorcing (laughs) understand you. And go, oh, I understand why you're divorcing me. I totally get it. It's a pretty reasonable decision. And um, I'm going to take that criticism that you give me and and use it to make myself a better person. (laughs) That is never going to happen. So you have to take your own insights and make yourself a better person if you can. And if you can't make yourself a better person, be who you are and try to borrow some of the good karma from people who could make themselves a better person. I'm really hoping that that's in there somewhere. Although that's in, uh, that's in Christianity too, and you borrow Jesus' good karma. It's the same, um, same idea. I have a, a friend who tells a story about her mother-in-law, Carolyn, and um, Carolyn, Carolyn uh, can't pronounce the word vinegar. Um, she calls it that sour stuff. And Carolyn is, is a colorful character. So Carolyn's in the drive-thru at the bank, and the pen that the teller has lent her to sign the check has fallen underneath Carolyn's seat. And Carolyn is reaching for... She's like, just a second, I'll get, I'll get your pen back for you. And she's reaching under the seat, feeling around for it. Well, she finds it, and she, she clutches her hand over it. But when she has a pen in her hand, she can't get her hand out from under the seat. And, and so often, we're holding on to things that keep us stuck. And the, and the bank teller is telling us, don't worry about it. Just let it go. Don't worry about it. I've got 100 pens. Don't worry about it. She's like, no, no, I can do it. I can do it. So we're caught like that in our grasping. We're trying to grasp. Here's how we think it should go. Here's the person I should be. Or I'm not going to be like my parents. Come hell or high water, I'm not going to do that. That's called reaction formation. It's like your parents controlling you just as much as if you did exactly the same thing that they did and had the same hairstyle as your mother, which is always a sign of weirdness to me. I don't know. (laughs) Don't you think so? So we're caught with our grasping and we're unable to be free. So what is keeping you from moving? What are you attached to? What are your cravings? What are your desires? And can you, can you see ahead and see what is going to happen with your life if you can be in the present moment and let go of trying to make things be the way you think they should be? And can you sit at the feet 
of people who have been struck by the lightning and thunder of disaster and say, what is that like and what are you learning? And can you teach it to me? Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.